0: Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a room of rejected mascot
1: memorabilia. Is it real? No one knows. But we do know NJM is proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM.
2: Warning: This podcast contains spoilers for the finale of Andor and some minor spoilers for the film Rogue One. Booger it. <laughs> My name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture in this episode. It's the big Andor finale episode. We're going to be discussing the Andor finale in the airlock, in the hive mind, more Andor with Atlantic staff writer Adam Serwer, who wrote a really, really interesting piece in the Atlantic about the show. And in Nerd Out, Liz theorizes about an Andor character's possible connection? To the force. And of course, if you want to jump around, check the show notes for timestamps joining me today. She's the only one that knows what happened on Canari. She <laughs> is a daughter of Ferrix. She knows all about Saga's extremism, but she's not gonna talk about it anywhere else. But here she is, the great, the powerful Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? I'm good. Hello. It's true. I saw was right. I just need to say that. I'm a he was absolutely- apologist. He I was always right. To, we're going to talk about this at length because he continues to be right. He was right early. He's still right. And he will continue to be right. Yep. And he just does not get the credit he deserves. Mm-mm. How was your Thanksgiving?
3: It was a very good, chill time. I ate food with my friends mm-hmm. and I watched a lot of movies and worked on a very cool secret project that I can't talk about. Ooh. So I didn't have a proper break. But I, I it was nice to just be Can able, able give- to slow down.
2: Can you give like one very very vague hint?
3: It's it is a comic book format. <laughs> it's in the comic book format. It is, that's the hint I can give you. But yeah, I missed I missed being here talking to you. But Same. it was is is nice to to just take some time and nice to be able to like really dig into Andor and kind of watch it and take wait. in that unreal finale before we kind of dig into it here.
2: I had uh, I had family in town. Um,
3: oh,
0: and lovely we went
2: all around. Uh, I baked bread. We realized that um, we realized that one of our family members who had covid like two months ago and has been like, oh, my taste hasn't come back. My taste hasn't come back. Stuff tastes weird. We realized when they were here. That what was going on is their taste had come back at a certain point. They're just eating bad food wherever you <laughs> I was going to say you will because, know in L. A. In, in L. A. You will eat some food and you will know the flavor will after, be there. As soon as you know, we like ordered some Italian from John Vitti's and uh, and immediately it was like this pesto is delicious. Holy, holy cow! I'm like oh, what? Well, <laughs> looks like the taste is back, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful, to have it back. Okay, let's get into it. Let's get into the Andor finale. It's runoff time. Early voting starts Monday, November 28th for the December 6th election. If you're a Georgia voter, head over to votesaveamerica.com to make your plan. And if you want to help out no matter where you live, you can donate and find remote and in-person volunteer opportunities to make sure the Warnock campaign has the resources it needs. 51 senators means the difference between a true majority or being faced with another two years of roadblocks. Like Problem Children, Kristen Cinema, boo, and Joe Manchin, boo. Make sure that every Georgia voter can make their voice heard again at votesaveamerica.com. We're stepping out of the airlock into the streets of Ferex as the, uh, the mournful but also inspiring funeral mm-hmm. march is playing. And we're here to talk about the finale of Andor Rick's Road, written by Tony Gilroy, directed by Benjamin Caron, Grand Ferrix. It is the day of Marva's funeral. Deidre arrives on planet. She meets with all her imperial underlings and, you know, takes a peek into Bix's cell through the porthole, elsewhere, Zan meets with Brasso after Brasso's shift, and Zan tells Brasso that, hey, I just got a call from Cassian. What? That's right. I think Cassian's coming home. He knows that Marva died. Meanwhile, the ISB is all over Ferrex. They're crawling all over the streets, keeping a very close eye on Brasso. They're watching this this interaction happen. Uh, Meanwhile... Also watching this interaction happen is Sinta of the Aldani crew. They are waiting also for Cassian to show up because they would like to kill Cassian dun, and dun, dun. close that loose end. Later, Nurchi, uh, the Frexian junk dealer who is now informing to the ISB with absolute alacrity, is giving up every. He, he can't wait to give it, to it all to up. It wants to do it, wants to get off this this dust bowl of a planet, is meeting Xan for a drink, and he's like, you know, he's like, oh, you know, it's got to be, who's going to place Marva stone, and that's got to be really eating at Cassian, and that's got to be so tough. And uh, is plays this very, 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 very cannily, because... He can kind of tell that Zan has some information, but then Mm -hmm. Nurchi covers it up by saying, hey, if you know anything, keep it to yourself. Don't tell me. But like can tell (laughs) by the way that Zan is like stewing over his drink and clearly wants to say something that he knows something.
3: Yeah. And this is a great bit of foreshadowing, too, because like who will be there to place Marv's stone? Don't worry. The stone will come in use. In one of the most oh, memorable yes. scenes. And you will see who places it and where they place it. And it's so good because that line just gets me.
2: Elsewhere, we see Wilman, who is the son of Solomon, the, mm. a man who was uh, previously in the in the series tortured by the ISB. We see him as- assembling some kind of device, which we take to be a bomb. On Coruscant, Mon is waiting in the limo for Perrin. He gets in, they go off to ride off together, and then Mon starts this argument with Perrin where he, she confronts him about his gambling. How long have you been doing it? I can't believe you're gambling again. Um if you want to do that, you know, go to Canto Bite to do that, but don't do that here and don't lie to me about it. Um, and Perrin is like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Like, Why are you going on about?" He's like, I yeah. have "Many. He does many things wrong. This man, but gambling is doesn't yeah, seem like, like it's I one of them." That, I've cleaned that up. I haven't been gambling. Certainly not on Coruscant. Somebody is getting in your ear. They're trying to tear you down by attacking me. And anyway, where would I get the money? And and Mon is like, "That's the thing that scares me the most." And of course, all of this whole discussion is is for the benefit of Chloris, who Mon knows, their driver, Chloris, who Mon knows it is an ISB agent slash informer.
3: Yeah, she's setting up her husband to basically take the fall for whenever this audit comes around. She's laying the Right, where's the, the, the money? I don't know,
2: my husband, spe- my husband gambled it away.
3: He gambled it away, and you know what? You know I didn't just come up with this as an excuse because didn't my driver tell you that six
2: months ago? Right. Now, and it's actually... Super, super smart. That said, we know there's a Andor season two, and you all you have to feel that this is not a permanent fix. Like this will buy her some time, surely. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they untangle this and try to figure it out, maybe follow Perrin around. You know, like this will force the ISB to spend some assets on Perrin and see if he is really uh, gambling. But ultimately, the ISB will run this down and will figure out that. That's Yeah, not especially
3: what's going because even if they don't figure out what she's actually been using the money for, they will know that she got the loan from Davos. They will yes. find that out at some point. And the question is, how reliable is that man? Now that their families are connected through their children, is he going to protect them? Will he sell Mon down the river? This could be, I think, a big th- thread that we see in season two. Does Mon get isolated from her wealthy family and her background and does that radicalize her or does she have to just sell out people that she loves to protect her status so that she can stay in that place for the greater rebellion
2: i wonder there is a uh, a great scene in the great series rebels i mm-hmm. want to say it's like season two or three where mon Gives the speech that basically announces that the rebellion exists. Right, she gives that uh, that video speech where she's like, "Hey, we have to fight the Empire. I am denouncing the Emperor today. I am resigning from the Senate. If you want to fight the Empire, come meet us in space and let's do that and let's do this." Basically, founding that the foundational moment of the Rebel Alliance. I wonder if we get a version. Mm-hmm. Not let not like a retcon per se, but if we see that from the other side, because that would be pretty fun to, to uh, I think, see the Tony Gilroy version of yeah. Mon's like. That's what I was gonna say. Coming I out, I
3: We know how much the shows and the animated series have kind of lent into each other and become very and ent- entwined, especially because Filoni is behind a lot of the other live-action shows, it will be very interesting as we move forward towards the time that we know in the main Star Wars timeline to see how those moments intersect and to see what Tony translates from Rebels and Clone Wars honestly shows that without which Andor still probably wouldn't exist because those shows were what made Star Wars television a viable possibility. But like you say, it would be fun to see Tony Gilroy translating some of those moments from what many people still essentially see as like a kids' TV show in this the least kids-friendly Star Wars show of all
2: time.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Back on Ferrex, vel meets her her partner, Cinta, at the safe house. Um, Cinta updates vel about all the movements of the ISB agents, various ISB agents around town. They know they have to be very careful. Um, She is ready to kill Cassian Andor the second She is about her business. Vel is not
3: about it. Cinta is about
2: it. She is ready to pop him to save the network as soon as he shows his face. And yes, you're absolutely right. Vel, throughout this episode and the previous episode, is really troubled by this. Whatever... She just gets a vibe from Cassian, not to mention he was really the most competent member of the aldani mm-hmm, group. like they mm-hmm. would not have pulled it off if not for him and yeah. so the idea of double crossing him stabbing him in the back in order to keep him out of imperial hands really mm-hmm. really bothers her you can you can really really tell um
3: yeah and i think as well like the the privileged background that she comes from as yeah. Mon's sister she she even though she wants to leave it behind her it is the safety of it. I think is drawing her back. She wants to. She did the Aldani. Wasn't that enough? She yeah. doesn't really know that it's a continuous struggle. Whereas Cinta is very much in the mindset of like, I will do what has to be done for as long yeah. as it needs to be done. More of that Lutheran
2: school. Absolutely. Um, Cassian arrives back on Ferrix, and he finds Clem's brick in the streets. Uh, Marva's partner. His. essentially the man who raised him as a father. Uh, And he remembers a moment where Clem was teaching him to, you know, how to clean salvaged equipment. Uh, And there's this wonderful like small moment of like, see, like most people wouldn't even look to see what's actually underneath all of this stuff. Um, And he's thinking about that. And then he heads over to Bix's shop. uh, And she's not there, but Pegla is there. And it's from Pegla that Cassian learns that. Bix is in the hands of the ISB. Um, Cassian, kind of to steal himself, uh, goes off and listens to some of Nemec's manifesto, and it is elect- it is truly like electrifying yeah. stuff, the kind of stuff you can't believe that you Shall we read it? I have it. Hearing it. Yes, read it. Okay. In Star Wars.
3: There will be times when the struggle seems impossible. I know this already. Alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Remember this, freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. There are whole armies, battalions that have no idea that they have already been enlisted in the cause.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible stuff. And the performance
3: is so great. Like it just, it's the first of two incredible speeches of this finale. This one is my favorite, but it gets you. It's it also, so good.
2: It really just makes you think, obviously, in, in recent years, Mon's role in the rebellion has been—it was always clear that she was incredibly important. But with Rebels and Rogue One and some of the books and stuff, like, it's it's become clear what a pivotal character she was. And then it's also clear that supporting her are people like Nemec who provided—we're seeing— a lot of the philosophical framework for the struggle and people like Marva who provided a lot of like the emotional um, impetus and inspiration for the struggle who we just are never going to hear about. They're certainly never going to get a medal. Uh, They are not like revered heroes of the rebellion. And it is really amazing to like learn about them here. And also the other thing I was thinking about is like that, the idea of like freedom, you know, being, being, an organic, a natural idea that just Mm -hmm. springs up when you are restrained, when you feel less free, you want to struggle against that. That's natural. I've been thinking a lot about that with this, uh, with this story and thinking a lot about how, you know, something we talk about a lot, which is bad guys don't think about themselves as bad guys. They think Mm -hmm. they're doing good. Um, I remember, you know, reading uh, in any number of histories of the Civil War, reading about how, for you know the the southern slaver class uh ahead of the Civil war, freedom slavery was absolutely in line with their definition of freedom because it meant freeing themselves from ever having to do manual labor, which they saw as like work not befitting like gentlemen and and it just has me that that idea and Nemec's, Manifesto just has me thinking about how much these kind of powerful but amorphous ideas like freedom, mm-hmm. and oppression can be aimed and reconstituted and targeted yes. in a million different ways by people who are really being sincere but are also like completely deluded. Yeah in the true meaning of the word freedom or the nature of oppression um yeah. i mean we're dealing with a lot of that in our in our world today mm-hmm.
3: and i think there has been readings um from certain different groups of andor that supports their ideas of like what freedom is to do with right. like january 6th and stuff like that what i love is the the speech is much longer right and there's this line that uh that nemick says where he says the imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. Yeah. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks, it leaks. Authority is brittle and oppression is the mask of fear. And I love that because that's when it does that Tony Gilroy thing where there's this vagary to it. But then you do the, you do the twist where it's like, we are talking about fascists here. And the reason they want to oppress you and the reason they have to fight so hard to do it and the reason they need to be militarized and have weapons is because it's so unnatural what they want for other people to not yes. be free, you know? Yeah. And and I love that idea. And also this, you know, talking about kind of the current politics of, of what translates here, this is also very interesting because one of the most regular talked about kind of points about protest is something that people can't stop is multiple tiny protests all over a city Mm -hmm. or a country. If you have one big protest, it's easy to stop it. But If you have multiple rebellions or tiny gatherings, there are never enough people to stop it. So it's very interesting, once again, to see Tony Gilroy bring that contemporary idea of protests and rebellion and put it into the context of Star Wars.
2: Elsewhere, Deirdre is running her team through the ISB. Her her. Plan base her action plan for Marvis funeral. Um, they're going to have Rick's Road covered from every angle, but no snipers because Deirdre wants him taken alive, okay? they 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 need a living witness, uh, and that's a big deal. Now, I think this is going to be something when we go to season two that Deirdre is going to be called to the carpet about. I think mm-hmm. that I would expect in season two, that one, Deidre is going to blame other people for yes. the failure to uh, to to grab Cassian and Andor, one and identify the contact. And two, she is going to be blamed herself for not having enough lethal force. Yeah ready to like put this whole thing down.
3: Which is really funny because she's not doing it because she's some kind person who doesn't want to kill people. She wants control and to understand the greater plans of the rebellion. So she's like, well, we need people who know what's going on so I can torture them and ask them what's going on. But it's probably going to be played out because we've seen this misogynistic Hierarchy within the empire, it's probably going to be played out as if she's a woman. She couldn't do what needed to be done. She couldn't bring their lethal force to control the rebels.
2: Uh, Certainly, Blevin of the ISB is waiting in the wings for the downfall of of Deirdre. Uh, We go to Coruscant, go to ISB headquarters. Uh, Cloris, the driver, is informing Blevin about this argument that Mon and Perrin had, and they're trying to figure out like what the, what does this mean. Then Blevin is called away because uh, the Krieger raid is happening. The Krieger operation is happening right now, and the result of that operation is Anton Krieger and his entire crew of thirty, 30 men, some thirty Krieger some and thirty men <laughs> are gone. There there are no survivors, no one to interrogate. Now, Deirdre is pretty wound up about this, uh, and she is on the horn with Major Partigaz, and she's like, you know, someone's got to say that we're never going to unravel this thing if we don't have someone to talk to. Somebody's got to be in the room saying that, Partagas is like, okay, you don't get it. This is about uh, wiping the taste of Aldani out of the emperor's mouth, because if the emperor is feeling anxious... None of us will be able to do our jobs. So you, you want prisoners? You want to be able to have a conversation about the way this operation is being run? Find the contact. Find Axis, aka Luthen who they don't know who that person is. Elsewhere, um, the ISB that is watching Brasso realize they've been fooled. Uh, it's not Brasso that they're watching hanging out at Marva's. It's actually a Brasso double. He, uh, Brasso himself, has slipped down into the sewers where he's meeting with Cassian. Brasso tells Cassian that Marva wanted him to know that none of this is his fault and that she loved him. And uh, very touchingly, she said uh, she. Told Brassa to tell Cassian that she loved him more than anything he could ever do wrong, which is such a powerful, mm-hmm. a powerfully Star Wars sentiment, yeah. in which, you know, I mean, this is a story in which we actively forgive people who take part in the wiping out of planets and the massacring of of children. Uh and so that is just a very, very Star Wars thing. To utter, Brasso promises that he will take care of Marva Stone, and boy, does he!
0: <laughs> <laughs> he does it, baby.
1: He
3: t- he uses he takes care of it, and he uses it to take care of business.
2: Um, Luthen makes contact with Vel, just out on the street. Also, yeah, wearing his <laughs> sick vest. Yeah, he's got Sith. like a black hood. He's looking very villainous. Okay, let's. Can we talk about this? Yeah, Tony Gilroy, of course, w- uh, from Rogue One. He didn't give us any Jedi in that, but certainly we would assume that Chirut is at yeah, least Force-sensitive. Force sensitive. I wonder... I mean, clearly the robes make you think Jedi, make you think Sith. Yeah. I wonder if Luthen is, one, sensitive did or did also two. have the kyber crystal. That's so right. So he
3: definitely has a connection to the Force, to the ideas of the Jedi, even if the word are not, is not being you know, uttered. And I know that our guest, Adam, he, he has some thoughts on that, too, that are quite, like, theory-focused. So, but definitely the robes, they're meant to make you think, like, oh, yeah. I mean, he's wearing black robes, he's got them over his face. Could just be a manifestation of the way he sees himself. We know he sees himself as the enemy, as someone who's fallen, who's done these terrible things.
2: But the Kyber crystal, you know the, the Kyber Sky crystal. Kyber. I'm thinking yeah, I, it he's, might also be he's, a Jedi. Maybe he's like a Jedi native. I do want. I wonder Jedi, that yeah. too.
3: I wonder if there's some That's connection to Jedha, some yeah. connection to that space, or just uh, maybe a friend or a family member who was force sensitive, who who was a Jedi. Who knows? I, I'm very interested because they really play into it in this episode with the way that they dress Luther. and we know that costuming in Star Wars is. It's rarely a coincidence. Lots of thought goes into that.
2: <laughs> um, so Luthen tells Vel that, oh, this is perfect that there's so many ISB here. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, listen, we, we don't have to hunt Cassian. We let them do it. And then when they find him, we kill him before mm-hmm. they can take him away to interrogate him. It's very, very easy. Now let's go to the hotel uh, where we can wait him out. Then... The bell tower starts a-clanging. It's the funeral. The funeral is starting. The marching band, which has been warming up, now begins to play their funeral dirge. The parade... Is, is moving th- slowly through the streets. There is Brasso holding Marva Stone in front of him. B2 Emo is rolling along with him. Various other notable figures from uh, Phyrexian society are all here. Imperial officers are getting very, very anxious. Any kind of display of, of – uh, of the people, any kind of mm-hmm. mass gathering is a thing that they're just going to be very, very nervous about. And they're
3: definitely starting to realize that they're they're outnumbered, which Certainly is always the way. There's always more people than there are oppressors. And there's a reason, it's just whether people are together or not.
2: There's a reason they're building a Death Star, and that's because they mm-hmm. don't have enough people to put everywhere in the galaxy. Yeah. um Cassian is watching all of this unfold from his hiding space, and he he spots Luthan in the crowd. Meanwhile, Nurchi uh, makes who believes that he has found where Cassian is hiding, and in fact he has, makes contact with his imperial handler He's like, okay, pretend to arrest me. I'll take and he gets arrested, and then he's like, Listen, I know where Cassian is. I want double the reward right now, and you get me off the planet immediately. Like, no waiting, no PASCO, no next week, next month. I want to go now. Deidre and the ISB goons, they prepare to move in on Cassian's location. But again, Deidre is like alive, 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 alive. How many times do I have to say we take him alive? The funeral parade stops. Brasso uh, uh, and B move to the head of the column. Uh, in her cell, there's this wonderful moment where mm-hmm. Bix is kind of like hearing the funeral music. And she's like slowly kind of like stirring. Of course, she's been like heavily traumatized by uh, the torture she's been uh, uh she's been submitted to Um, and all of a sudden the band changes to like an upbeat marching number and the column begins moving with a real purpose Death Troopers now are closing in on Cassian's hiding place but he's not there, he slipped back into the sewers and now the crowd is chanting stone and sky, stone and sky stone and sky, and then B pops a little hatch on the top of his little head and begins to play a hologram A message which Marva recorded some time before she passed, and she talks about how much she loves Ferrex, the culture of Ferrex, what makes it important. Ferrex's kind of positioning in the Empire is this kind of like place of salvage where they've all just kind of ignored the Empire for all these years. Like they come and you know they do their business here, and then they leave, and we try to forget about it. And she says that she wishes she had done it differently, that she can't forget about it anymore, and that she wants the people of Ferex to not ignore their feelings about the empire. They need to rise up. They need to resist the empire. She says, I want Ferex to continue. We've been sleeping. We've had each other, and they left us alone. We took their money, and they ignored us. And then she says, fight the empire. And then all of a sudden, the imperial officers, they step in to try and break this up and B gets overturned. Can I talk about people? And when, people, the, and when that, people see B overturned, they fucking it. lose it. No, no, no. That's the funniest
3: <laughs> shit, yeah, that I want to go down in Star Wars history. <laughs> Marva gives this speech and she's really like, she's talking about all the funerals she's seen. This is a place that's paved with funeral stones because yeah. so many people have died. And every time it made her a little bit more angry at the Empire, but really now she needs people to fight. She gives this rousing speech and people are getting jostled. They're jostling. But, it's not until an imperial officer kicks over B.
1: How that fucking everyone is dare just like, you! Everyone's
3: like, "What the fuck!" And what then that the I need it to go down in history that this rebellion on Ferik started because somebody put hands on B two emo, and everyone was like, "Absolutely not!" Yes, absolutely not. It's how fucking dare you! Yeah, Brasso. He's the most pissed. He just he runs straight up there. He's got Marva's funeral stone. And it's he, just beautiful. Hits, he just bricks an Imperial officer it's right in the head. so
2: beautiful. And it all kicks off. Cassian uh, is at the hotel. He finds Bix. She's in a terrible fucking state. Meanwhile, out in the street, the Imperial uh, shock troopers, the riot troopers are beginning to buckle. And it's at that moment when it seems like it's unclear whether the Empire is going to be able to get control of this situation or whether the riot is going to break through. That Willman hurls whatever it was he was he was building and it in, indeed is a bomb and it explodes. Several stormtroopers go down. They're uh, – Their vehicle is also damaged. Overturned. And (sharp) there gets overturned. Their box of grenades cooks off, and now more explosions are rocking the street, and the stormtroopers just open fire on the crowd. They begin just, like, gunning everybody down. Brasso drags Wilman to safety. Zan gets shot down. R.I.P. Zan, who just was a good friend to Cassian. Was really
3: holding it down. Was was really holding it down
2: and never... You know, had his own things going on, but at the end of the day, made took necessary risks to remain on the side of of justice. Mm -hmm. And he dies here, um, along with what we can only assume to be probably dozens of people in the explosion and the ensuing uh, gunfight. Uh, It's surely dozens and dozens of Phyrexians were gunned down here. Um, Meanwhile. Cinta is running around in the streets, an ISB agent who kind of like figures out that she's up to no good, stops her. She stabs him to death. Cassian fights his way out of the hotel. He sees that Nerchi is probably killed in one of the explosions that happened. Yeah, it's, it's unclear. I, I have
3: that feeling the classic, like he could have, because we see the explosion happen and we see him get knocked down and he's laying down. He looks dead. But I'm like, maybe he's not dead. This could show be. hasn't had a great record of killing people other than black characters. So I'm hoping maybe he's gone, like, learn his lesson. And But I think there's something to be said. You know, I I, I was on the LA Comic Con uh, podcast and Hector Navarro said this really like thing that I thought was really heartbreaking. But it really got me where I was like, even the people trying to escape who will do anything to escape, if you side with the Empire, you're still going to die. Yeah, That's like die. the most fucked up thing. So like he tried, he betrayed his friends and what for? To end up maybe dead on the floor. It's like lots of deaths happening, RIP to a lot of people.
2: Not to mention, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but you have to assume that once the Empire gets control of this situation, and by control, that probably means hundreds, if not thousands, gunned down.
3: Yeah, dead.
2: Hundreds, if not thousands, put in prison and interrogated. And then, as super producer Saul is saying in the chat, martial law and an mm-hmm. occupation of significant size, you then wonder: like, what is the state of Ferrix when we come back in season two? It is probably. Does even if exist. it exists, yeah. right? If they didn't use it as a test case for the for the the Death Star, which is mm-hmm. not operational yet, does in what state is it? If it even exists, it, it, yeah. that I'm sure will be. Heartbreaking. Um, as all this riot is popping off, Deidre gets clobbered by a rock. It's wonderful. She goes down. It looks
3: like she's about to get torn apart by the yeah. people of Ferex. Absolutely. I really thought she was coming to an end, and I was feeling very good about it.
2: I was feeling great about it until she is rescued by Ugh. our n- terrible friend Cyril Carn, who the hitched a ride car. out here. Uh, and, yeah, you know, I've seen people, like, frame their quote unquote relationship mm-hmm. as like Cyril is quote in love with yeah. Deirdre. He's not in he's this a is not love. Yeah, he's a star. This is a toxic relationship. He is in he is just enamored with anyone who is wielding power. He wants yeah, to feel powerful. Power. And he yeah. wants to be close to that. It's not necessarily about Deirdre personally. It's about what she represents and he is not a well man. It's very,
3: it's going to be very interesting slash scary to see where that goes in season two because he pulls her aside, he saves her and she's like, oh, I guess I should say thank you. And she's sort of still scared, but they're all close, pressed up together. And this is going to be someone that she's going to have to trust. I mean, how are they going to get off Ferex? Is this going to be the kind of situation where we start the second season straight afterwards? Is there going to be a time jump? If we have to see them escape, there is a potential that she's going to have to rely on Cyril, but we know that Cyril is a horrible person yeah, and he's a very toxic person from a very toxic household. He does not respect women. I imagine that whatever that relationship becomes in the future, it's not going to end well for Deidre because that's a man who he wants to be close to power because he wants it, not because he respects her. Not to mention,
2: you wonder again, we're jumping ahead a little bit to the conversation, but I I do wonder if Deidre does... Undergo some sort of downfall because of mm-hmm. her failure in this this whole Ferrex operation. And would Cyril
3: sell her out?
2: Would Cyril one sell her out, or do they team up to yes. do to continue the investigation either uh-huh. on their own, or does she, or does she go to the ISB and say, "Hey, this super super toxic weirdo really really helped me out, and he's really yeah. driven, and maybe give him an ISB application, and I'll vouch for him."
3: So Chris. Uh- just uh, Super Producer Chris just put in the chat that Tony Goris is going to be like a year time jump. Mm-hmm. So I actually, of all the options that you just laid out there, I think it's very likely that in a year we either see them in two places. Cyril very high up in the ISB at Deidre's side or post that downfall and they're both kind of in this folia do insane quest to take down the rebels in a very violent, toxic way. So either way, it's going to be interesting. I was rooting for Deidre to die, but As so i have to hope that. we As I we never heard were. of her in the late... <laughs> you know, I, I'll always be very happy where I'm like, in the future, I'm like, look, I know the canon of Star Wars. And guess who I never heard of? Deidre. So that just means I can hope she hey. dies. I'm hey. like, hopefully she'll yeah. be
2: dead. <laughs> yeah, and you know, she wasn't... Certainly we don't see her, you know... uh uh, running around at the side of Orson Krennic. Exactly. So... Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, fingers <laughs> yeah. crossed. Um, okay. Okay. Luthen is watching the riots from afar while Vel and Sinta are packing up the safe house. They're preparing to get off the planet as quickly as they can. Cassian spirits Bix to to a ship, which is going to carry her Brasso, B2 Emo, Willman, and some others to safety. Cassian says his goodbyes, gives some advice to the pilot. says, listen, as soon as you get over the sea, you you don't have your tracker on. You fucking hit the afterburners. You're out of here. B is like, "But, "But, Cassian. I didn't get to see you. And you're like, this is fucking heartbreaking. And then Cassian says, I know, but I need you to hold things down here while I go take care of business. And B is like, but you always say that. And then Cassian is like, yeah, but you always come through for me. Don't you? Mm -hmm. Don't you little B? And it's, Wonderful. And I hope that B is safe forever, even though we never, (laughs) hear, much like Deirdre, we have never heard of him before. And I hope that he is safe somewhere. (laughs) Me too. And there's
3: a really interesting moment where Cassian's like, I promise I will come and find you. And it's unclear whether B doesn't really believe him, understandably, but it's unclear whether Bix is lucid or not, because she then says, Cassian will come. Cassian will find yeah. us. But she says it to Cassian as if she doesn't recognize him. Yeah. So it's a really interesting kind of heartbreaking moment, especially because of what we see him doing in the final scene
2: of the show. I gotta say also, some real Borgullet parallels with what oh. happened to Bix and uh, you know what Borgullet is able to do oh and, and does, could, in fact, in Rogue One. Could what the babies
3: are... Could they potentially be related to Borgolet?
2: Like you wonder if that is the if Borgolet is screen. the last, the last of its kind, you know, mm-hmm. then we go to Coruscant where <laughs> Mon and Perrin are presenting their daughter uh, Lida to the gangster uh, Davos Sculden and his son it is some sort of Chandrilan match. This is some, some sort of ritual how, like, one in Chandrilan culture.
3: Scenes in the show was, of a, this is a this is a finale full of depressing, sad moments, and yet this moment you, seems you so want to talk depressing. About, Mon's face is I mean, so listen, horrified with what she is doing. It is so gross. You and want to talk sad. about
2: ruthless? Like right? we yes. think about L- Luthen as ruthless, right? He's going here to kill someone mm-hmm. who has been very useful and beneficial to him and his mission and will clearly sacrifice anyone mm-hmm. in order to keep the rebellion going, keep it safe, keep his network from being uh, being revealed. Man, Mon, as scared as she is, she's also tremendously ruthless and courageous. Just, yeah. I mean, first of all, setting up her husband to take some kind of fall, Grim offering up her daughter, who is you yes. know Little Miss Fascist Coruscant twenty twenty two, offering her up to a gangster in order to keep the, the the rebellion you know in money. She is an unbelievable hero of the Rebel Alliance, and the and things that she has had similar. to do are in. Just she's
3: much more similar insane. to Luthen than she would have us believe. In her own way, in her own scary, like, extremely ruling class way. And the way that she just sells it is so heartbreaking to see the... She just knows that she's doing something terrible that she does not
2: agree with. I I would argue, too, that she's... Even though you see her fear... In a much more present way than you see, Luthan's. Mm-hmm. I, I think she's she is. I mean, you know, Luthan calls himself a coward at various points, but I think that her courage is so it's it's jaw dropping because she is just completely exposed. Yeah, she is surrounded. Like her family would turn her in if they knew. Yeah, her family loves being part
3: of the empire. Happily, because they would get turn her so in. So much privilege and money and security and status from it. They just love it.
2: Luthen could get in his spy shuttle with, uh, you know, his faked um, transponder codes and his various counter, you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, countermeasures against imperial encroachment, and you know, jet off to we would assume some safe house somewhere in the galaxy. Mon, if it all goes badly, if it all went sideways, which we know it won't, from because you know we've seen again, we've seen rebels, we've seen (laughs) rebels, we've seen Star Wars, but if it went sideways. Can she? Would she be able to get off Coruscant? It's really mm-hmm. unclear. Like, she is just completely exposed. So, like, uh, sh- kudos to Mon Mothma, a true hero of the Rebellion. Um, elsewhere, Cassian has broken onto, into Luthan's ship, and he and Luthan arrives, and Cassian confronts him. And Cassian gets Luthan to admit, yes, I came to Ferex to kill you. You made it really hard to kill you and Cassian's like, "Well, I'm I'm going to make it easy. There's a blaster right there on the table right next to you." And Luthen's like, "What the what is this? What is this?" And Cassian's like essentially says, "I want to fight the empire. If you don't think you can trust me to fight the empire, then kill me right here." Yeah,
3: he's or like, else, "Kill me
2: or take me on or else take me on and let's fight together." And Luthen smiles and realizes, "Okay, this guy Cassian I can trust. And let's go fight." And then we get the stinger scene in which we discover that the prisoners of Anarkina 5 were assembling not just the Death Star, but crucially the super laser for yes. the Death Star, which is, you know, uh, Galen Erso's uh, uh, project revenge. and masterpiece and ultimate revenge. Also, the, the his life's work is that.
3: Very um, so ironic.
2: It-
0: very to have the prisoners
3: building the thing that will eventually lead the rebels to be able to get freedom for the galaxy. And also, we were right. We did. Say. We were right!
2: We were right. We were right. Um, we
0: were right.
2: A couple of things that um, have been on my mind ever since watching, uh, you know, finishing this series. Number one, I thought we were going back to Canary and we we're going to find out what happened to Andor's sister. I guess that's probably on the on the table for... Season, Season two. 2 did you were you expecting that were you thinking okay oh, all right
3: you know what i really wanted to because as i've said like we've spoken about this before i do think that is one of the places that the show did not deliver the kind of nuanced interesting context and conversation and representation that i think it did so well in things like Nakina 5 yeah. or even just like as the finale went on and we got to see this textured working class planet of ferrix um but i i think this is my hope Right. My hope is that season two will focus on Andor finding his sister, as in that will probably happen quite early. And I would love to see his sister challenge what Marva did and challenge his assimilation outside of Canari and kind of the way that, and make him just realize that there was a set, there was a part of that behavior that, even if it had good intentions, was actually. Quite dangerous and 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 had a bad effect on him. I think that would be a really interesting way to bring that real life analogy that we spoke of, of of indigenous children being kidnapped and and adopted, and giving it that same context as a show that gave us a prison industrial complex, yeah. slavery storyline. You know, so I, I was surprised that there wasn't even a tease of his sister, but maybe that I hope is because in season two they're going to do something that's just as complex and thoughtful as what we've seen in in this season.
2: Yeah, I was I'd be interested to know what happened there and certainly I feel like I I know the way that it hits me the Marva storyline which is that uh you know, I think Marva and Clem thought they were doing something really good Definitely. there, right? They thought they were doing something really positive. But also you know, it's it's that thing we talk about with perspective, where everybody thinks they're, no matter what they're doing, thinks that they're doing the right thing, or at least is trying to act mm-hmm. out in a way that comports with their ideals about, um, you know, justice and right and wrong. But it's also clearly. They kidnapped a kid. <laughs> yeah, but, and you also, know, like flat out, like you yeah. don't know where his parents are. You mm-hmm. don't know where his family sister is, is. You don't know what his the bonds that he has with those people are. We don't know anything about the culture of those people. But, like, and part of I think I, I, part
3: of this is like there was a really intense and in depth uh, long conversation in our Discord about this that lots of members took part in, and I think something that really came up there was also something we saw in the early episodes, there's a reason that we don't know any of that stuff. And that's because from when he was a child, Marva says she told him not to think about Kanari, not to tell people yeah. he was from Kanari, not to even remember Kanari. don't talk about your sister. That in itself reflects the way that indigenous children in the past have been violated by being forced to pretend that they are not indigenous to fit better into these, like, you know, Uh, inverted commas, schools and and, and orphanages and stuff. I think that that is a very interesting parallel that, again, I would like to see explored. Because it's to do with intention and impact. I believe Marva thought she was doing the right thing. Yeah, But Cassian lost that deep connection. And it was, it feels to me that the fact that the sister was a driving force early on in the season, but we haven't heard about her again, really, as the season went on, I don't think that's because he's replacing his sister with his found family. I'm hoping it's because that will be a bigger arc in season two.
2: I mean, there were clues. There were hints at it over the the final two episodes where I thought, oh, we're going to we're going to we're going to go back there and we're going to find mm-hmm. something out. But um, that never happened. I again, I do expect that we're going to tie up that loop, certainly in season two, if not on in some other story form. OK, Saw Gerrera – you hear a lot about, you know, in Clone Wars, elsewhere, about it in Rogue One, certainly about Sagarera's extremism, how the things that he does actually hurt the rebellion because mm-hmm. it drives a wedge between the various factions who are get who are kind of like reaching across these various ideological lines in order to form the rebel alliance he's just so out there and and I guess the implication is violent that um that people don't uh, there are a, is a significant faction in the rebel alliance that doesn't want him associated with the cause at the same time I'm really struggling I wonder if we're going to find out what that is in season 2 because I got to say I'm, Saw feels very tame right now. Like, I'm not saying that he is not a killer, but so is Luthan, but Mm -hmm. so is Cassian, but so is Vel, but so is Sinta, but so is like everybody that we've seen thus far. And Saw does not seem meaningfully out of step with what anybody else is doing. And the only thing that I see right now that is different, of course, is, you know, again, there's a lot to be revealed, we would assume. The only thing that really sets part, uh, saw apart right now is the fact that he was first. He was he Mm -hmm. before anybody was trying to organize to resist the empire. He was doing it and saying that we should do it.
3: I I wonder. So there's two routes I think they can go. One, I think in a way, it's just quite one of those funny narrative conundrums because Tony Gilroy in this show it, at multiple points is like, just hit an Imperial cop with a brick.
0: Yeah, Just, just hit him with break
3: brick. out of prison. Like he's just putting forward ideas the guards
2: on the way yeah, out. Yeah,
3: exactly. He's putting forward ideas that are radical. And a lot of what we've seen in Star Wars before has been that kind of that Xavier versus Magneto style conundrum of like, the rebellion of Mon Mothra, the rebellion Mothra, Mon Mothma, the rebellion. <laughs> I got Godzilla on the know, brain. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm like, I know George Lucas loves Godzilla. It's probably not a coincidence. <laughs> but um, you know, the rebellion of 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 being peaceful and money and 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 being in the Senate. We now know that that's actually fake. There are not two yeah. versions of the rebellion. There's the violence of the rebellion that has to happen to allow Mon Mothma to do the things that she wants to do. What I would be interested in seeing, will Saw Guerrera get the blame for Aldani? Is that what makes Mon so so scared of him and his techniques? Because she's scared of Aldani and she would love to not be connected to it, even though it's what she is funding. I wonder if there's something around that where Saw ends up actually getting blamed for the one thing he didn't do. Because the truth is... He is the one who told Luthen, don't go and kill Krieger's people, actually. Don't allow them, I mean, don't allow them to die to keep the secret. That's wrong. There's 30 men there. He does not believe in willful deaths and and murdering people. He believes in doing what has to be done. And now we're seeing him, that is very much in line with what Cassian feels or, or the show feels. So it will be interesting to see if they expand on what Saw allegedly did or if Saw ends up getting the blame for something that the rebellion don't want to take so also
2: for. also feels like you know it, it reminds me of a of a of a dynamic that happens in the real world which is a group of people you know f- you know from a, a disenfranchised community or from with you know real roots and a lived experience that is maybe outside the mainstream will say hey this thing is actually this is like violent against our community this is this Mm -hmm. is this is the first step in like you know uh, we see where this v- actual is actual violence being taken against like th- this is where this is going and P- and oftentimes in the real world when those figures will speak up people say oh that's fringe you're being alarmist uh, yada 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 i see that as kind of happening with saw who is mm-hmm. again who is early on was like the empire we got to fight the empire this is look how crazy this is look how uh, look how evil they're being and people being like no uh, it's not that you're bad. being you're being alarmist you're being a little crazy about this and i think it's very interesting that SAW is branded an extremist by the quote-unquote mainstream of what will be the Rebel Alliance at a certain point when within a few months of of the raid on Scarif, that mainstream of the Rebel Alliance will absolutely greenlight an operation that kills like, what, 2 million people on the Death Star? Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's just interesting how somehow saw is an extremist but blowing up the death star which let me just go on record that was the right thing to do (laughs) like yeah 100 that was the right move. there is a ethical but conversation to be had but well like however many people saw killed can it possibly match up to how many people died in the in the battle of yavin so it's just very interesting that at a certain point, the mainstream of the rebel Alliance has come to a place where they're doing things that are – that if they would have been told half a year mm-hmm. previously what would occur at the Battle of Yavin and elsewhere, they'd be like, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. We're not going to kill three million people like in a stroke. Yeah. We're not going to – like that they will find themselves in a place where that will just make sense. and I And I hope that we get to see – Whatever it is that Saw does to either get that kind of like label as an extremist or we get to see, you know, a moment where he gets to say, well, I was I was, I was right. right. Was I not right? <laughs>
3: I wonder if like in the realistic political al- allegories that this show's building in, I wonder if the label of extremist is just something they say about him because. They don't want people to respect him or realize he did it first. You know, they they oh, you're an extremist. You're Saw's an extremist. We can't listen right. to him. But this was the man who laid the groundwork for what you were doing. You just don't want to give him credit.
2: I will say, you know, like like a, a lot of us on this Zoom, I watched Rogue One as soon as I was done with with Andor, and I think that Ooh. a lot of Saw's paranoia in that movie suddenly just make a it just yeah. makes a lot more sense. The fact that. You know, the Krieger reveal, Luthen's Krieger reveal to him that and and how his shock at realizing how willing Luthen would be to mm-hmm. like burn an entire network to keep everything safe. His, it, it, It's easy to see how that experience, not to mention whatever physical trauma he had undergone in the intervening years, would result in the paranoia that we see on Jeddah, where he's like, this is a setup, isn't it? The pilot, you're. Trying to bait me into going somewhere. And it's you could almost watching it, I can almost see the wheels turning mm-hmm. like this is like Anton Krieger. They're yeah. trying to set me up like Krieger. It, it suddenly, all of a sudden, really made sense.
3: That I will say, I think is one of the absolute master strokes oh, of it's what wonderful. Tony Gilroy did with this show. He went, he made out he made Rogue One, and then he basically retroactively. Created a prequel with Andor. Look, this sounds like what everyone should do with a prequel, but it's not. It is like a puzzle box where he takes tiny moments that almost seem throwaway from Andor and expands on them in a huge, huge sense. I mean, having, you know, the droids that arrest Andor on the Space Miami. Yeah, BT, look BK2. <laughs> B- yeah, same model as K2's. Little yeah. things like that. Uh, you know, Uh, Adam will talk about it later, but like he has a prison inside him and he carries it with him everywhere he goes. We now know what that means for Cassian. So, why would he think it was a setup that's so specific? Because that is what Luthen did with Krieger. Like it's so satisfying to feel the pieces click together. And if you haven't gone back and watched Rogue One after finishing Andor, do it because I guarantee you are going to feel. Incredibly satisfied and very smartly, there is still a lot of space left for Cassian to move in season two to get to the person he is in Rogue One. He is not that person now because of what happened in season one, but we understand the person he is
2: in Rogue One a little bit better because of this season. Absolutely. One last Saw thing, which is, you know, clearly when we see Saw in Rogue One, He is he's sucking on some sort of like oxygen tank that he needs because his lungs have been damaged. He's missing limbs. He also doesn't seem to recognize Cassian or certainly now it could be in his state, his absolutely paranoid state that he just doesn't remember that he knows this guy or had met this guy or been in the same room as this guy. You know, Luthen, I remember Luthen saying that thing about Krieger. He doesn't know me. Yes, we've been Mm -hmm. in the same room, but he didn't know who I was. It could have been a situation like that where Saw has been around Cassian but didn't know, didn't recall exactly who he was. But I wonder how they're going to play that in season two. One, I would expect we're going to get more Saw. Mm -hmm. And two, why is it that? Obviously, Saw is a famous figure, and certainly in rebellion circles. But why is it that Saw didn't seem to know who Cassian was? Okay,
3: so I think this could tie into the journey of Cassian over the next season. I wonder. It's very, it's very sad. It's very bleak, but I think it's probably quite likely. I wonder if the way that Luthen sees Cassian as being useful after that interaction, I wonder if Luthen is the one who trains Cassian to become that cold-blooded killer. Oh, t- I think so. And and I wonder if the reason that Saw and Cassian don't necessarily uh, cross paths in any kind of definitive way is because Cassian's life is as a killer, as an assassin, as the person who will take out those who needs to be taken out, which means that he is essentially a, 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 a specter you know he's not yeah. really a presence in the rebellion because his role is to take out the people who and i would assume that would be very easy to get cassian to do if you say well here are the people who destroyed canari here are the people who did this thing that personally hurt you here's an empire person who did something terrible here's some and then then that's how you get to the person in that first scene of rogue one who can just shoot the informer
2: i Let's talk about Luther for a second because he gives that little smile when when you know when Cassian gives him the choice either shoot me down or take me on and but i i I've you know other pods that I listen to other uh have kind of you know maybe have have kind of placed Luthan in that same kind of you know uh, framework of somebody who Comes to the light of like, oh, I've seen the error of my ways. I shouldn't have tried to kill Cassian. Maybe I'll do the rebellion differently. I didn't get that sense at all. The sense, especially considering what you mentioned, that at the beginning of Rogue One, Cassian is every bit what Luthen is now, Mm -hmm. and will without any kind of compunction. Luthen has other people to do it for him. He will. He has no compunction to just like cutting off you know, the head mm-hmm. of, a, you know, a loose thread, if that protects the network. I think I don't sense any kind of hesitation no. or, or sorrow in Luthien. In fact, I think at the end of this, Luthien is going to continue to be as ruthless as he has been, like yeah. that is my sense from from this. What did you feel anything oh, no. different? You think Luther totally, is going f- to change his ways?
3: I totally agree. I think you're on exactly the right path. I didn't see it that way at all. I saw his smile as he is incredibly satisfied because here is a person
2: this who, guy gets just it. like him. Yeah, this guy will gets
3: die. It. Yeah. Ru- he's going to die or he's going to be in the rebellion. And actually, what that really means is he's going to die being in the rebellion like Luthan. And obviously, we see that Luthan's speech, that becomes true for Cassian dying for the sunset you'll never get to see or the sunrise you'll never get to see. That is foreshadowing of Cassian and Jin dying uh, on Scarif. And I think that what he's smiling about is to Luthan, because of how ruthless he's become, all of this whole season was almost like a test. He didn't know yeah. he was testing Cassian. He was going to kill him. But then he comes as, oh, here's somebody who will, who is so desperate to be a part of this, who so believes this is the right thing to do, that he will give me a blaster and tell me to kill him or make him a part of it. I think Luthan is just very happy to have someone else who's kind of as unhinged and committed to this as he is. And I think that, Luthen is a user as much as he's doing things for a greater good, and I think we will see that ruthlessness and exploitation translated to Cassian. I do believe my gut says Luthen probably will like in season two. This might not too galaxy brain, but a little bit further along kind of theory. I think he will probably die saving Cassian. I think that will be his one moment of redemption. He sees that Cassian can continue this on and he sort of does something to stop Cassian dying. I think that is the only redemptive moment he may have. But I think that it is no coincidence that Cassian's ruthlessness at the beginning of Rogue One is a direct reflection of Luthen's. And I think that relationship over the next season is only going to get more
2: terrible (laughs) i have a galaxy brain i have a galaxy i'm ready i think luthan saves cassian somehow at that and to your point that is the kind of Luthen redemption moment but cassian is forced to kill Luthen, at a certain either to let him walk into an imperial trap let him go down or I think that sounds very
3: realistic.
2: Has to kill him in order to keep him from falling into the Empire's hands. And I think it's going to be a very tough decision. But I think that is how we get to the Cassian Andor we see in Rogue One. That would be a watershed moment. I think just that shoot makes a guy so in the, sense. He'll shoot a guy in the back. He'll kill Galen Urso, even though the orders are we snatch Galen Urso when somebody put, you know, takes him aside and goes, hey, listen, we're not actually going to rescue Galen Urso. You fucking kill that guy the second you lay eyes on him. Who will happily kill Galen Urso in the presence of his daughter? Yeah, even if though he's that, like connected with his daughter yeah, on yeah. a human level. As long as that allows the rebellion to survive... I think that's my galaxy brain take. I
3: think that's a really great call. I think Saul pointed this out. I totally agree. Luther would want it that way. He'd want he him to want it him. He would want it that way.
2: He would agree with it. Yeah,
3: he would want it. He's probably given him the old kill me wink, you know, yep. the old like you can do it. But also, okay, so this is, let's galaxy brain it up a little bit further. I wonder if... There's some kind I wonder if the sister arc and the Luther arc cross over in the way that Ooh, the Empire like that. or somebody gets hands on Cassian's sister and he has to betray an in inverted comma's Luthan, but there's some kind of agreement that's made. I wonder I like if those well. two sides of his life will be pitted against each other. I really hope the sister arc does come into it next season, and we're not just like she's just fridged, like, oh sorry, she's dead. Yeah. Like, sorry to you. Though there's been too many. His there's coldness. been too
2: many mentions of her yeah. for that to happen. They're, they're gonna bring it. Um, Vel and Sinta. Uh, what do you think we see from the Aldani crew going forward? And are they gonna be active participants in this nascent version of the Rebel Alliance?
3: Cinta, yes, I think she's gonna become a big character. I I have a big feeling that she's gonna. Be on ca- alongside Cassian on that journey, maybe someone who he sees doing the things that he believes he has to do. I think Vel could be a very interesting character to see Mom Mothra. Mon- oh my God. Mom Mothma. <laughs> Mom Mothma through, through Vel's eyes and to see that the two sides of the rebellion, Luthan's rebellion and Mom Mothma's rebellion. I think Cinta and Vel could become kind of reflections of those two versions because Vale's definitely getting tired of the the brutal reality of the rebellion. So I hope that we see both of them going forwards in season two. Uh,
2: An amazing show, an incredible achievement. I understand why they're only doing one more season. Mm -hmm. Certainly when we (laughs) talked to Tony, and he was like, well, at a certain point, I was just like, what the fuck am I doing? This why is did like, I, why, why did, did I, did I agree agree this? do this? This is ruining my life. So I'm very, I you know, like, I'm very grateful that he decided to do that again, <laughs> to go through yeah. that process again. Um, and I can't wait to see, man, I can't wait to see how this leads us into Rogue One, the Battle of Yavin, and, and on and on. Where do you put Andor in your Star Wars pantheon?
3: Woo! Um... I am, I mean, surprising no one. My favorite Star Wars is my favorite main canon Star Wars is Return of the Jedi. Because really my favorite Star Wars is like Battle for Endor, like mm-hmm. Ewoks. I love those Ewoks movies. I and mean, the I love special. Yes, I, I love that love stuff. It. That's my closest to my heart. So I'm a Jedi first person. It, it's really hard because it's the Comparison of subjective nostalgia and love for these things and objective goodness. I would say in objective goodness, this is as good as the best Star Wars. So it would be... 100%. I would say in mine, it's probably around... Currently, it would be like Jedi, Rebels, Clone Wars, Andor, uh, New Hope... But then again, you know, I love The Last Jedi, so sometimes that's my number one. So it's, ha- it's hard for me, but it's up there. I'll say it's up there. I can't say n- definitively a number base because there's too many Star Wars movies. I'll never forget seeing The Force Awakens in a cinema at midnight with like a bunch yeah. of other people. That was like one of the best cinematic experiences of my life. I think The Last Jedi is a masterpiece. But this is up there. I think this is objectively includes some of the best Star Wars storytelling of all time. The a 5 stuff for me is... That's, That's some amazing. of my best oh, genre storytelling ever.
2: Um, one thing I forgot to talk about, and we talk about a little bit with Adam, um, is there are other prisons, like, for other a, other alien races, right? Like, they yeah. kept all the—they were like, what's your home world? They kept all the humans with the humans. I would assume if they have Wookiees, they keep all the Wookiees with the Wookiees. Like— th- we would. We should assume that, right? That there yeah, are different. The empire different. They don't has want solidarity across
3: alien yes, and human. That's the they last that's thing they They know that's very want. dangerous. So I think as well. Season two prediction: something that we, I know, we both want to see in season two. More alien representation, different kinds of aliens, understanding why human supremacy is such a big part of the empire. But also understanding, as we kind of talk about with Adam, that that is also probably a budget constraint. And we are very yeah. happy with what came out of that budget constraint because this show looks amazing. And oh, they committed incredible. to telling, like, a really incredible story.
2: Okay. I have Andor. I think it would be tied for two. I have Rogue One and Andor. To me, like, yes. you need both, right? I agree. So it's either—so I have—again, sometimes, as I've said here, yeah, Rogue times when Rogue sometimes One is your your my favorite. top. Sometimes my favorite. But I'm going to put Empire first. Okay. So Empire, Rogue One slash Andor, 1A1B, Rebels, A New Hope, Mm. and then probably Jedi. Yeah. I love Return of the Jedi I love Return of the Jedi. It's hard
3: because like now there's so much Star Wars that it stops being an easy question because like I would also say that The Last Jedi, even though it has like some really big flaws, I love a lot of the stuff that they did there. Like I wish that Finn had been more obviously a Jedi. I always believed him and Poe were both Force-sensitive, and we kind of get that in the third movie a little bit. But like, I love the stuff with him and Rose. I think that that throne room fight is one of the coolest things that's ever been put to screen. It's
2: the best lightsaber fight ever, period the
3: idea of the democracy of the Force and everybody yeah, can use well. it and it's not just some weird bloodline elitism. So that one, for a long time after seeing it, that was my favorite. But there's so much that it's just hard. But but this is up there, definitely. And I think, I feel very lucky to live in a time where you can be like, oh, there's great Star Wars TV shows. And they're not just great for a Star Wars TV show, like Rebels and Andor. Those are just great TV shows whether or not I would say anyone who doesn't think they're into Star Wars should watch this show. I think it could just find such a huge audience. And I hope that people give it a try, even though I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast probably loves Star Wars. Yeah.
2: Well, we've got more Andor up next in our conversation with Atlantic writer Adam Serwer. Crooked and Duolingo just released a brand-new limited-series podcast together hosted by audio journalist Ahmed Ali Akbar. Radiolingo investigates all the ways that language shapes our world and how the world shapes our language. Each episode explores a different way language plays a role in our life. From swearing to subtitles and everything in between, listen today and subscribe to Radiolingo wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. The Crooked Store has launched a brand-new Line of merch inspired by your favorite shows just in time for the holidays. New items include sweatshirts inspired by Love It or Leave It and Hysteria, a Bake Appreciator apron, and a magnetic poetry kit that lets you make your own terrible notes app. Apology. This holiday season, every order from the Crooked Store will support Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund to make sure every voice can be heard in the face of unprecedented voter suppression. Find the perfect gift for the Crooked fan in your life and pick up something yourself while you're at it. Head to crooked.com store to shop now. X-ray vision is brought to you by Hut Hut Hike Athletic Greens. Our next partner has a product I use literally at different times during the week, but on a regular basis. I started taking AG1 because vitamins, folks, you need them. And, then, and guess what? Sometimes as you grow older, you can't keep eating like little vitamins in the shape of dinosaurs or various Flintstones or in like little gummy shapes because that's, Not adult, I guess. That's where AG1 steps in. So what is AG1? AG1, with one delicious AG1 scoop, you're absorbing, get this, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. Good. Your nervous system. Okay, I'm listening. Your immune system. I love that. Your energy. Okay, important. Recovery, good. Focus, great. And aging. That's basically all the things. How do I do it? I just, I take a scoop of AG1. I put it in some almond milk or some oat milk, maybe a little bit of ice, maybe a little bit of peanut butter if I want to put it in the blender because I love peanut butter. I mix it all up and I drink it down. It's very, very easy. Here is some facts about AG1 to let you know what an incredible miracle product this is. Maybe you have a particular diet. You don't uh, you don't eat eggs, or you only eat fish, or you are paleo, or you're keto, or you're vegan. Guess what? It's lifestyle friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, whatever, dairy-free, gluten-free, all the freeze, AG1 works. And maybe you're thinking, you know what? Um, I've been cutting back on sugar because processed sugar, it's not great for you. Contains less than a gram of sugar. No GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. And it tastes great. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop of a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and... Five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash x-ray again. That's athleticgreens.com slash x-ray to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. X-ray vision is brought to you by Smile Actives. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Are your teeth aging you? Popular food and drinks are known to stain teeth, beverages like... And it saddens me to report this to you, coffee and wine, stay in them over time. So what can you do to brighten your smile? Well, maybe you should give Smile Actives a try. Smile Actives is safe, which I don't know about you, but I care about. Effective. OK, I also care about that. And easy to use. Good, because I'm a lazy person. And it will keep you smiling proudly. 97% of Smile Active's users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades. Six shades whiter on average, all within 30 days. Man, we had some brown tooth people in this clinical survey, folks. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile, like the 97% of Smile Actives users who reported six shades of improvement on their teeth in a clinical trial? Well, before you visit a dentist, which you should do, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to I'm going to kind of veer off of the script. You should do that. And I hope that it's affordable for you to do that. And I hope you have access to a dentist, because I think that's important as much as we all fear the dentist, it's important. You should know that a dentist whitening treatments can be very expensive and it's not just the price. It's also that you got to sit there and you got to listen to this dumb banter from your dentist and they're grinding on your teeth with the drill and they got that little hook out and they're digging in your gums and it it's uncomfortable to say the least. And you have to book the appointment, which that takes time and they have to sit in the, and you, the whole thing. It's a whole rigmarole. Fortunately, now you can try Smile Actives at home or anywhere where brushing your teeth is fine to do. Smile Actives offers a safe and affordable alternative to those expensive whitening procedures. Simply add Smile Actives Pro whitening gel to your regular toothpaste. Then brush as normal. That's it. You don't have to brush your cheek or like, brush your armpit. You just brush your teeth after that. It's been formulated, Smile Actives has, with polyclean technology, folks, to boost stain removal and deliver active whitening ingredients to the teeth's grooves. But what about the crannies, you say? Also the crannies. That polyclean's getting in there and the grooves and the crannies and the little valleys and it's whitening up your teeth. Smile Actives makes a teeth whitening gel that can simply be added to your toothpaste. I just said that, but I'm saying it again. No change in your routine, no extra time, yet people will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in just days which is a little weird, right? That's weird to be like, God, your teeth used to look messed up, but now they look great. (laughs) That's kind of rude. But I guess it's a positive thing if they're saying how great you look now. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile that you deserve. Visit smileactives.com slash x-ray today to receive our special buy one, get one free offer, plus free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com slash x-ray. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we explore a topic in more detail with the help of expert guests. And this week, we are thrilled to have Atlantic staff writer Adam Serwer join us to go even deeper into the politics of Andor and talk about his Star Wars origin story and more. Adam Serwer is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he recently wrote a piece titled Star Wars Gets Political But Not In The Way You Think. Adam covers a, a variety of topics, mostly on the political scene, uh, justice, society, race, et cetera. And we're delighted to have him here on X-Ray Vision to talk about Andor. Adam, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Um, so I, I think we're both really interested uh, to get your take. And also, you know, we're fascinated by your piece as someone who is not really like into the granular conversations around star Wars on a kind of a week to week project to project level, uh, to see like what your, what your reaction to Andor was. So what, you know, just,
4: okay. So how do you feel to, about it? I need to clarify this. So yes. I'm not involved in those conversations, Yeah, but I am involved in the sense that I'm a hopeless star Wars fanatic. I love to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was, like, a couple years after the prequels where I, I kind of detached and just, mm. like, wasn't interested. And then the Clone Wars cartoon brought me back yep. in. Nice. Um, And, you know, even even Rise of Skywalker, which is the worst thing that has ever happened to the franchise. Uh, it's I worse than that. Phantom Menace. It's worse <laughs> than, I mean, it, it is just the, the complete silence of anything to deal with that era of Star Wars. just yeah. sort of speaks for itself. Um, even that did not stop me this time because there's, there's so much other stuff that's good um, that they're doing. And, and and I think, you know, so I'm not I, I I don't write about it very much. I don't you know, I'm not uh, you know, I don't, I don't get like super involved in like the production details and stuff like it's not it's not professionally. Uh, it, it's all it, 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 except for every once in a while. It's not something that I'm professionally um, absorbed in, but I do love this stuff. I will watch this about any Star Wars content you give me. Um, I, I don't know why I just, I, I just really enjoy it. I think part of it is just that is it is just it's flexibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that's one of the things about Andor is that the universe mm. can contain so many different yeah. interpretations. Um, I, I, you know, I think one of the things that people liked about an earlier stage of the MCU, which is that it, it was very clear that in the Marvel universe, you could do something that was a completely different genre from something mm-hmm. else and it would still like fit. And I think Star Wars is really like that, right? I mean, yeah. like even if you look at Solo, which is one of the less celebrated installments, it's a heist movie. Yeah. Um, and it feels like a heist movie. And 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 that kind of genre flexibility, um, I think, is, you know, amenable to many different kinds of artists' interpretations of which Andor is probably the best example mm. of something of, of we've seen a Star Wars creator do something completely different from everything that's come before while still feeling at least to me very much like Star Wars.
3: Yeah. Okay. So before we dig into Andor then, as a fan, I'd love to know like, what's your origin with Star Wars? Where was the place that you first fell in love with it? And what's kind of kept you hooked throughout? I mean,
4: I, I was just, I was just a little kid who, you know, saw the movie when I was like five years old or something like that. <laughs> and like, you know, I loved the whole series. And then, you know at some point you're like eight or something like that and somebody's dad who has like you know who's like a cool dad or something and <laughs> likes to talk to him about you know x-wing fighters and stuff with his kids <laughs> his kids friends he says something like oh did you ever notice that star wars one is episode four and this observation just blows your mind <laughs> yeah. and you're just like wait wait so there's like this whole other story that we don't even know about and 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 nobody's seen it yet and what happened and like you you know and 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 this just sort of (laughs) this is the moment where you're like oh this universe is so huge Mm. that your imagination just runs away with it right and like maybe you start reading novels or comic Mm -hmm. books or something like that And, and it's just it's just um you know i think that was definitely the moment for me where i was where i sort of you know didn't just like it but sort of fell into the pit. Mm.
2: So what do you think it is about Andor? Andor I th- I think as you noted in your piece and as many people have uh, are talking about is really kind of the first project along with Rogue One to put some real meat on the kind of skeleton skeletal idea of rebellion that's kind of uh, alluded to and talked about but not really uh, explored in any kind of like detailed way what is it that uh, makes this story feel like Star Wars while also being seemingly like the most radical take on what a rebellion in this world would
4: mean? So I I think, you know, obviously Star Wars is no stranger to political allegory. And when I wrote that piece, uh, you know, my intention was not to say that this is the first time Star Wars has engaged in political allegory Hmm. because that's obviously not true. (laughs) Um, Lucas was, you know, sort of, famously like you know i i did this story where you can the rebels are both america and the viet Cong, and the empire is both america and the soviet union you know i mean and the nazis like it the the rebellion is every uh you know righteous insurgency that has ever existed and the empire is every evil regime that has ever existed um and, and and that that that's sort of You know, that's always been there. But what's interesting about Andor and also about Rogue One, although I think in a very different way, is that they have an internal politics that Mm. makes sense. I mean, I think this is something that, you know, the the difference between Rogue One and Andor uh, to me is that Rogue One, the Rebellion is very much a religious entity. Mm. Um, And when you look at, you know, they talk a lot about the Force. You know, obviously you have Chirrut praying. Um, you know the 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 rebels on the beach are saying for Jeddah uh you know yeah. when, when they're attacking scarif um there's this talk about I mean the 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 huge backlash is that they destroyed a holy city that mm-hmm. a, a, and and the Empire is still violently secular in andor um but the rebellion is not yet at least from what we see is not like a religious. Mm-hmm institution but that said it there's something similar there in that we have a sense that there are ideological divisions um in in world one it's simple you know they say saw as an extremist um yeah. but saw but in it, 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 and or really gives us you know you have mom mothma who's sort of a more establishment figure who's secretly you know funding an insurgency but is also sort of hor- horrified by the the actual violence that an insurgency requires yeah. Um, you have Saw, who, so, you know, gives us the sort of lay of the land as far as like, I'm not going to work with somebody who tried to overthrow the Republic with the droid army. Like, I'm, I'm just not <laughs> going to do that. Um, and, you know, you have uh, Luthen, who I think whose ideological origins have been hinted at in a way that I think the show very clearly wants you to think one thing, although he may not end up being that thing. I mean, yeah. I, I think the show is very clear that it wants you to think that Luthen. Some kind of fallen Jedi. I mean, he shows up. I mean, hopefully, you know, this Dot is not spoilers Club. for your yeah. listeners. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, no, he is, shows up in like finale Siths yeah. are us. Yeah. Sith brothers. He's <laughs> yeah, like, you know, he's 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 dressed like, you know, he's dressed like the fake me out Sith outfit yeah. Luke Skywalker is wearing in Return of the Jedi. So he he's like he's he's you know the show wants us to think this. Um, He has that sort of Chekhov's walking stick that looks like a, a lightsaber. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I mean? I mean, the show wants us to think that he's a Jedi. I don't know that he is. I don't know if that'll turn out to be the thing. I, I don't know what his particular ideological um origin is. But the important thing is that there is, there are ideological divisions. There is this, you know, manifesto that one of the characters writes in Andor that yeah. Andor himself is uninterested in because he's uninterested in politics in the mm-hmm. same way that in Rogue One, she's like, I, you know, I don't have the luxury of political opinions. She's kind of lying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? she, 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 Based on her origin, she does have political opinions. Um, but she has decided to reject them in favor of, you know, just scraping out a day-to-day existence, which is what a lot of the people in Andor are doing. And we don't see, uh, and a big part of what people like about the show and what people like about this portrayal of the universe is that we see those people, um, these people who are eking out an existence um, under a rep- an oppressive regime, um, not just the people who are sort of the heroes who are going to save the galaxy.
3: Yeah, something from your piece that really spoke to me is where you said this: the series attempts to imagine an internal politics of class culture and ideology that motivates its principal characters and in fictional institutions. I would say that it's quite easy to say that Andor is probably the first Star Wars that has really even delved into the ideas of class. You know, The the Last Jedi definitely wanted to touch on this idea of a, mm. a democracy of, of the Force and how all different people from all different spaces, but Andor, like you said, it really delves into kind of the politics of class and how it impacts the galaxy. Could you speak a little to that and, and how effective you think it is in, in this series?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, you know, Ferrix, uh, you know, Ferex is a working class planet. Uh, yeah. The people there are doing salvage, and they're working with their hands. Um, you know, the empire is—you know—you get a sense that um, the the heist in the film in the show provides a pretext for the empire to engage in, uh, you know, essentially uh, prison slave labor mm-hmm. um, to to speed up. You know, that that is not necessarily a question of uh, the utility of the repression, but the need to uh, recruit a labor force. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, you have, you know, things like, uh, you know, Karn is not simply an ideologue. He is sort of from a, a lower middle class family on Coruscant. Like we yeah. never, we can't see the sky from where mm-hmm. Karn's apartment, mother's apartment is. Right. Yeah. It's a small apartment. It's a kitchenette. Uh, the dining room, you can see the, the stove from the dining room. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's a small apartment. The neighbors are observing, you know, they mm-hmm. can hear uh, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, you know, Lower East Side New York City or something like that, um, you know, uh 80 years ago. Um, and and that 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 kind of detail, and I think this is again this something that, that Andor does really well, is mm-hmm. that it um they've done their research about historical periods and events in a way that allows them to remix them in a way that they're recognizable, but also mm-hmm. like they're not tracing them.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm
4: you know what i mean like it's it still feels like star wars it doesn't feel like you know it doesn't really feel like new york city yeah um uh it, 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 you know the 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 prison break um which you know to, like the, the the events of the prison break really uh sound a lot like the concentration camp uprising at sobibor in world war 2 um, but it, but it, at the same time, it's not so close to it that you're like, oh, they just copied this. Yeah.
3: Yeah. 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 They you know translate I mean? it into the world of stars in a way that feels organic.
4: Right. Exactly. Um, and you know, things like, you know, mom, Masma's daughter, it, you know, yeah. embracing, um, you know, her planet's religious traditions in a way that feels like an act of defiance, you know, not just towards her parents, but towards the empire, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is, again, it is it is similarly violently secular, right? They they do not have, uh, they tolerate religion, but they see it as a privilege that they can take away, not as a right of uh, the people under their control. Um, and so I think, you, you know, these are all three things that are drawn from the, I mean, and even when you look at Rogue One, it's sort of a similar, like th- th- that, that film is a creature of its period, um, but I think it is a yeah. not, it, it is a very clear sort of, analogy to the yeah. war in afghanistan in terms of this portrayal it's like a space afghanistan yeah. but or or the western perception of the war in afghanistan rather but the, the the point is that it's taking these real world world events and remixing them in a way that makes sense within the universe and that gives the universe a sort of realistic feel that um you know star wars is typically not known star wars is 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 a space opera but it's really a fantasy right it's almost mm-hmm, like a, it, mm-hmm. it's more it's closer to lord of the rings than star trek in some ways um and so i think you know the 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 sci-fi aspects of Andor are there like they're obviously present you know you but they are not the the wheels around which the plot itself turns necessarily yeah.
2: Uh, because the show is is uh, so interested in like what motivates people to rebel, what motivates a, a political movement, I wonder if you could, if you have any thoughts about how we interact, you know, as human beings with our political ideals. Is that a scaffolding that we then build our outlook on, or do people decide? As I think, Tino uh, you know, uh, Skeen the uh, the kind of Rapscallion Adani gang member who then tries to get uh, uh, Cassian to like turn on the on the group and steal the money. He had he had kind of won him to his side by saying, "Oh, you know, it's, they killed my brother, and here's why I turned against the Empire." You know, as as kind of alluded to by his character, um, people make a decision that they're going to do something and then backfill this entire political ideology to fit that like which comes first the chicken or the egg do you think in in the way we interact with our political ideals
4: well I think one thing one of the things that I like about the show is that it is not the characters make choices yeah Uh, you know mom Mothma is from a particular social class and she makes the choice to rebel not everybody in her social circle is making that choice in fact most people are not making that choice Um, she, she, she views the rebellion through her own ideological lens. You know, she's horrified by Aldani, even though like Aldani is what she is funded. Yeah. Um, you know, so her, her, her class background, her, her, her privilege, she interprets the rebellion through that. And obviously, you know, we know what happens with Mom Mothma later if, if you're, if you're a Star Wars fan, but, um, you know, the same thing, you know, there. you know, skiing is an example of someone who is he believes because he and Andor are sort of from the same galactic underclass mm-hmm. that they're going to make the same decisions. Yeah. Um, and that moment, narratively, it, you know, Andor is not necessarily committing to the rebellion at that moment. In fact, he's not. His plan is to take that loot and go to Space Miami. Yeah. It and, and, <laughs> doesn't go know, well. <laughs> yeah. Get a, get a girl and, like, you know, enjoy the rest of his life. But he's not, he's also not going to betray the rebellion. Of course. Um, and so you see, and, and similarly on Therics, uh, you know, there are people who make the choice to rebel and there are people who make the choice to side with the empire. Um, and, you know, I think that's, you know, the point of the show is that they and I think something the show does well is that, you know, these, these class backgrounds, these cultural backgrounds, they matter, they shape our politics. Um, but we do make decisions for ourselves about how we interpret those experiences and how we choose to, um, you know, h- h- how we choose to sh- uh, try and shape the world as a result of them. And and it's not just a question of robotic, you know, insert this background, you mm-hmm. get this politics.
3: Yeah. And for you as as a Star Wars fan, you know, we're talking about this on a really kind of deep political level. And like you said, Rogue One definitely was, there was a reason that a lot of Star Wars fans loved it, which was, oh, well, this is, this is the people who have to die before, you know, Luke and Leia can get a medal. Like, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. And Andor kind of expands on that exponentially. But, you know, even as a Star Wars fan, like you said, inherently a political franchise, even though usually quite vague, I found myself like incredibly surprised, and me and Jason have talked about this a lot, to see a, a, a prison slavery plot line and to get people on the side of people who are in prison who are being exploited for their labor, and then to cheer them on for a prison breakout, you know, for a riot and to get people on their side. Were you surprised as you were watching the show to see the kind of political analogs it was taking and the stories that it decided to tell?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, the, the protagonist is is a character who, who who's Father is a black man who's killed by the cops. Like, yeah. Y- yeah. you know, like there, there, there's, <laughs> there, there, there's just, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, because of my politics, I think, I, you know, obviously I tend to see some of the more left wing analogs in the story. I think there are right wing ones. I mean, I think yeah, that sure. the, the empire's violent secularism is obviously, you know, in keeping with, um, you know, uh, left wing. Regime, or, or repressive left-wing regimes around the world. I, I don't think that's a mistake. Or, uh, uh, you know, the the they are drawn from a lot of, like I said, they're drawing from a lot of sources. I don't think I was surprised because Rogue One was so clearly playing in those waters. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not expect them to weave them so skillfully into the story of the show in such yeah. a way that the show does not feel didactic to me. Um, mm. You know, when when you read out the sort of list of. Uh, plot developments and character motivations and things like that, it does feel very political, but in the show, it feels very organic. It does mm-hmm. not feel like you are being battered over the head with a particular political ideology. Now, maybe, you know, maybe that's because I I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a to center person. So I, I that's just, you know, I'm sympathetic. Same. Um, but I do <laughs> think that it, I, I do think that narratively, that you know, it is a good show that just happens to have, um, you know, plot points that uh, illustrate a particular kind of politics, but mm. they're not the most important thing in the show. The most important thing in in the show is that the the narrative flows, um, organically and movingly, mm-hmm. uh, and, and artistically, and it's not simply you know battering you over the head with what to think. At the same time, again, like look, you know, this is Star Wars, like it's an yeah. anti-imperial. Uh, the story is always going to be anti-imperial. Yeah. It doesn't matter who the who you know what form the empire takes, whether it's like fifty thousand years in the past or whatever, and it's a Sith Empire or it's, you know, the the Galactic Empire that we see in the original trilogy or the first order we see in the sequel trilogy. Um, you know, that that is always, you know, in some sense, that kind of rebellion is always that anti-authoritarian politics is always gonna be present mm-hmm. in the story. Uh
2: something that Rosie and I have been really interested in discussing and noting is like the the seemingly very conscious human supremacy of this story. Star Wars is a, you know, it's a a story in a world in a galaxy populated by lots of different species and and droids. Uh, But this is a story centered around humans, uh, particularly Empire. You don't see any droids at the highest levels of the decision making, the ISB, you mostly see uh people and white people and very few women uh even in this kind of like nascent rebellion you know Saw Guerrero has a as a pretty integrated crew but that's it i i wonder if um you might uh expound on you know what what do you think the the human supremacy of this story uh you know means to the story
4: yeah i mean i i think you know if you're a star wars fan there's a you know that there's a long time narrative um narrative explanation for this which is that you know the empire is racist the empire yeah. is a human supremacist organization um and you know in rogue one you see um you see more weird aliens fighting on the beach alongside yeah. the rebellion um and here in Andor, uh you know there is a conscious effort to portray the protagonists as being um sympathetic to droids and aliens in a way that the empire is not.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean obviously
4: yeah. B2 Emo is probably the most sympathetic non-comic relief portrayal of a droid yeah. we've ever seen. Yeah and he's basically um, a very, very sweet dog. He's a very very sweet dog. <laughs> um, but and, and you know some of that is in Rogue One, um, you know, the 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 reprogrammed Imperial droid whose name yeah. is is i on K 2 so right. I mean like, you know, when when he sacrifices himself, mm-hmm. um, you know, and or is upset. Yeah. He knows his friend is dead. I mean, he's so, but he sort of at the same time, he treats him like, you know, you're my droid. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, B2 Emo, there's that moment, uh, you know, where he's like, I, I don't want to leave the house. Yeah. When and he's like, well, I'll stay with you. Um, which is like, you know, a level of, droids are people that I think we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which I think it's like you know pulling at one of the more problematic threads of Star Wars which is that droids are you know sort of slaves um but nobody ever really acknowledges that <laughs> yeah um but yeah I mean I I think you know we see you know and then we we get that moment where they're escaping from the prison and they're you know they try to they try to hotwire um the ship of two fishing aliens yeah. and the aliens, could turn them in, but they don't. Instead, because they're like, "Well, we're not going to turn yeah, you in because the empire, the empire yeah. fuck the empire. <laughs> like, yeah. we don't like those guys."
0: Yeah.
4: Um, you know, I, I think I would expect. I mean, the two things that you know I expect from the second season of the show, other than a high body count, are probably <laughs> some explanation, <laughs> like some further explanation of of like sort of lay religion when it comes to the Force mm-hmm. um, that we saw in Rogue One. And probably, like, more dealing with aliens, although I think, you know, to some extent, even though there is a narrative explanation for why you don't see so many aliens, um, you know, I think there's probably some budget constraints yes. as well. I mean, I think there's probably, like, one of the reasons Andor looks so good compared to some other Disney Plus series is there's a tremendously well-done allocation of budget mm-hmm. there where... Yeah. um the story is done in such a way as to require a few moments of like crazy special effects but not as many you know you don't have you you know you don't have two giant dragons fighting each other or something like that (laughs) uh you you know what i mean that this is a story that it's it's i mean like even you know the sort of final episode like is like a shakespeare play where all the characters are on the stage at the same Mm -hmm. time like it's written sort of like almost like a a play um and so you know it it does not require, um it 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 didn't have you know there there are a couple moments like uh you know when when Luthen escapes in his ship that are like obviously like we spent yeah. a lot of money on this and it was very satisfying, um but, it, you know I don't know how much of the lack of aliens is a question of budget constraints or how much of it is a, yes. a demand of narrative but yeah. you know th- those are always you know those th- those are conflicts that even shows that are funded by the mouse have to make
3: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and also as well like those are the the confines of the budget can often uh, birth really exciting things. So I think the fact that it probably was driven by budget, but then it leads mm. to people having conversations like this yes. about whether it's deeper connected to narrative is part of kind of the wonder of of these shows. I mean, nobody expected a 12-episode Star Wars show to look so incredible because we all just assumed it mm-hmm. was going to be the six-episode budget stretched over 12 episodes. So it's definitely a, a surprising turn of events yeah i mean
4: it's like it's it's impossible like how do you how do you explain how andor looks the way it does and book of boba fett looks the way it does like how yeah. do you you know what i mean like it's just, i mean even in like that's just take away the sort of quality of the writing whatever um you know they, they, they these shows look completely different
3: yeah the production um, design of Ferrex is so textured it feels so real yeah. the finale really leans into that and also mm-hmm. Extras, I think that's the biggest thing. There's so many people in Andor, but the book of Boba Fett. Everywhere you go, only six people live there. Only yeah. ten yeah, people it, live it, there. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel. It lived feels.
4: In. It doesn't feel lived in. It feels like you're 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 looking at a set. And I'm not even. I mean, at some point I was questioning like, how much of the Ferrex set has been used in like other Star Wars shows? Oh, surely many. It, yeah. It's it's and somehow it feels unrecognizable. Like you're not like oh, this is obviously Mos Eisley. You know that's that's not the reaction you have looking at Ferrex. You know consciously that this has probably been used before, but it's not. It doesn't it doesn't feel that way because of the way they do it.
2: Uh, To your point, Rosie, I think part of this, another thing we've talked about in in past discussions of the show is this is really Tales of the Jedi aside. The first depiction of mass protest in a Star Wars universe, this real Mm -hmm. kind of like battleship Potemkin feel of an uprising, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, against impossible imperial odds. We've never seen that. Before in Star Wars, and it really packs a kind of emotional and and very ambiguous political punch. You know, <laughs> who doesn't love freedom? <laughs> you know, people mm-hmm. people across the ideological spectrum love to talk about freedom. But yeah, the, the the I think part of why it looks so great is look at all these people here that are protesting against the Empire. This is uh, incredible to see.
4: Yeah, I mean I, I I I think Star Wars, I think the truth is that the politics of Star Wars were always a sort of, you know, uh nineteenth century Republicanism yeah. in mm-hmm, a way that mm-hmm. was uncontroversial until recently. Yeah. Um, when people started, you know, uh being like, you know, romanticizing like uh Francoist Spain or something like that <laughs> uh, I, you know this sort of like weird neo-phalangism that you see um uh, uh, amongst, you know certain circles but um you know I, I I think I think to some extent that shift in our own politics is really the thing that's changed the most mm-hmm. um you know I think uh, uh you know and or has like some reflections of our era in terms of, you know, uh, mass incarceration, the the, the the issues that animated the George Floyd protests, um, you know, questions about uh, it, it, equal protection under the law. But I think its politics would not seem so radical to us were it not for our political context. I'm mm-hmm. not sure that it will, it will yeah. feel that way necessarily To future generations yeah i mean you know star wars itself despite uh you know the original despite sort of you know lucas saying well you know the rebels are kind of like the viet Cong or whatever uh you know people didn't interpret it that way Mm -hmm. at the time like nobody nobody who went to see star wars in 1977 not nobody you know i can't say that but the the wide
2: um, yeah the the, 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 (laughs) massive audience the people that were queuing three and four times
4: a day to watch
2: the movie
4: right people were like laser swords and space battles they you know um and like the rebels are us obviously uh look at look at these british accented (laughs) villains um yeah and that's that's another thing like you know this sort of like strain of like irreligion in the empire it's like you think about one of the best things that star wars does is it takes like little threads Mm. um from 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 previous installments and draws them out so you have you know the scene in the first in a new hope which is like uh you know some imperial general saying to some you know Uh, You know, you don't frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader, your sad devotion to that ancient religion. You know, there's like contempt for faith that like, you know, then spins into like everything we're talking about or like Mm -hmm. there's a line in Rogue One, where Chirrut says something about Andor, like, this one has a prison in him, and he takes it with him wherever he goes. Like, now you look back at that line, and you're and like,
0: you're like wow! Yeah.
4: <laughs> Holy shit! And this is something that's, I mean, like, you you know, this is something that Star Wars does, like, you know, that scene in in A New Hope, where Luke runs into the Millennium Falcon, he has to abandon Obi-Wan, who, you know, is, is about to be killed by Vader. Uh, you know, that's, like, the last... Um, the the completion of Order sixty six. Except mm-hmm. you don't know that because it's yeah. nineteen seventy seven. But it's like <laughs> that scene where like a Padawan has to abandon his master who's being killed by the Empire. Like that, we've seen that replay over mm-hmm. and over. Yeah, which is self, you know, which it, which uh, you know, is it's like a you can retcon Star Wars in a way that makes prior moments that were supposed to be one thing mean something completely different and be an emotionally resonant. In a completely different way and it's something that i don't i'm not it's hard to think of another um genre or another you know uh, uh, another um universe in fictional universe in which that kind of thing is really possible in the same way i mean other people try to do it i won't mention any names but other people have tried to do it in a way that seems like hacky and like just uh you know trying to preserve a particular brand's relevance for for, for a certain moment um but with this it's like people take something like like Dave Filoni will take something that was in the prequels, of the original trilogy, and spin it out into some narrative complexity that becomes wonderful, mm-hmm. and that's andor or sort of like that on a grand scale.
3: Yeah, you you touched a little bit, I think, as well on the the trajectory of Star Wars is is quite unusual because for a long time, it was kept alive by these, you know, expanded universe, now known as like Legends mm-hmm. novels. So in that way, people have always been taking those little threads and expanding it out, yeah. whether it's a book about a character that you didn't realize could have this kind of complex interior life. And and then that is now continued in the way that new creators are taking things and collaborating on old ideas to kind of keep the IP going. But it's kind of one of the blessings of that constraint of, oh, we need to keep this IP alive, we need to keep people caring about it, you get creators Mm. who sometimes come in and see something like Tony Gilroy saw in the possibilities of this Mm. story to kind of tell an entirely different, to show an entirely different version of what we've seen before.
0: Mm.
3: So you wrote your piece before the season had ended. We are now Mm. post the finale of Andor. How do you feel like the show hit looking back as now that you've seen the first season?
4: Um, I mean, look, it, it's its obviously, I think it's one of the best um, interpretations of this universe yeah. uh, that we've ever seen. Artistically, from a narrative perspective, I think it's tremendous. You know, just in terms of portraying what motivates someone to be a, a rebel mm-hmm. or to line up with the Empire, uh, I think that's just a question that, you know, was not necessarily previously asked i mean i think or at least not asked and answered in a way that felt satisfying i Mm. mean when you look at the prequels um you know this is sort of the 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 point of the prequels was to say this is how darth vader happened yeah yeah right um and you know the world building in the prequels was so good that it created a lot of potential right Mm -hmm. but the ultimate narrative of how darth vader happened felt very unsatisfying for a lot of people and then you had clone wars uh you know which really pulled at this thread and like portrayed it like showed this like evolution of anakin as someone who is like slowly being radicalized Mm -hmm. um so that between episode two and episode three um, you know, Clone Wars gives a a, a a tale of how Anakin becomes more and more desperate and attached um, from, you know, his own self-discipline, so as to make himself vulnerable to Palpatine's manipulations, mm-hmm. um, and that. So, so again, in the grand tradition of like Rogue One, filling a giant star wars plot hole why would the empire have a super weapon with (laughs) such an easy (laughs) way to destroy it like i mean that's what rogue one is right like it is is a movie that is devoted to being like wait (laughs) why did the empire build something that you could destroy so easily with this like one loophole and the answer is oh because this guy did it as like an act of ultimate revenge Mm -hmm. against the empire like that's you know, in the same grand tradition, like, how, why does Anakin show up in episode three as, like, sort of a psychopath? Um, and the answer is, you know, he's been frustrated for the Jedi Order for years. They unfairly yeah. expelled his Padawan. They, uh-huh. You know, there's all this stuff that gets filled in that helps make the narrative richer and make more sense. And I mm-hmm. think Andor, you know, both Rogue One and Andor gives us that well, what happened before episode four? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, what, what happened to get to, to, how did, how was the rebellion built? It gives us these answers in a way that I think is extremely satisfying, um, building on, you know, not just the, um, the, the, not just the good parts of the old universe, but even the bad parts. Yeah. I mean that's that's one of the great things is that you could take a plot hole as big as why is why is destroying the Death Star so as easy as you know shooting a torpedo into an exhaust port, um and, and spin like a beautiful explanation out of it mm-hmm. that is emotionally compelling. And it's like again, it's this is a plot hole. This is a you know a flaw <laughs> in the original storytelling and you know and and they somehow made a great story out of it and Mm -hmm. that's you know that's that's part of the magic of the universe for me
2: uh adam thank you so much for joining us uh do you have anything to plug
4: you know i'll plug our world cup newsletter right now the the world cup is going on this is a whole other aspect of of my nerd life but the world cup is going on the atlantic has a world cup newsletter the, the the great game um it, it, I'm not the only person writing it uh there's a lot of other people writing great writers uh Clint Smith uh, Adam Harris Frank Foer um and I highly recommend it especially if you are not um uh you know a super uh soccer fan this is like more for the people who tune into the World Cup every four years um and, and that's it thank you so much for having me on the show
2: one last thing do you want to this is your this is your opportunity A perfect opportunity, too, to talk trash about Shea Serrano, our mutual friend, (laughs) Shea Serrano, in a context that that he that might get back to him. And then uh, so any any burns, any roasts of Shea that you'd like to share on the program today?
4: You know, if you had prepared me, I would have I would have (laughs) thought one up
2: made a google doc of all the but best zingers yeah. yeah, i would have yeah.
4: made it i would made an excel document with all my possible shay zingers but it's hard though because we're both like uh y- you know we're both like bald high yellow hobbits so like <laughs> you know it gets tough like anything i said what am i going to say about shay that isn't also true about mm. me um <laughs> but yeah i'll just uh so i guess that'll count as my burn How that about that? that? yeah how about that how about that
2: Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Please come back. All right, take care, guys. Have a great day. (laughs) In today's Nerd Out, where you theorize about your favorite fandoms and tell us what you love and why, Liz theorizes
1: about the big man's possible force-sensitive nature in Andor. Hey, everybody. Friend of the program, Liz, here with a wild Andor theory for you. I'm here to talk about the top 10-ish reasons that I think that the Force-sensitive character that we have been introduced to is Brasso. Just going to throw this out here off the top. I am obsessed with this show. It is the best Star Wars I have seen in years, maybe ever. I don't know. Got to wait some time for that recency bias to clear, but I'm obsessed with it. And I'm obsessed with it particularly because it does not follow the same Star Wars formulaic space magic whatever heroes trope that we've all come to know and love. So I don't want or need a Force-sensitive character necessarily. However, there are some huge indicators that I've noticed and I want to share them here. So right off the bat, number 10, probably not the strongest, but hey, if you look at his outfit, he is wearing pretty much the same outfit as one of our other favorite Jedi, Ezra Bridger. That's right. Take a look, folks. Orange jumpsuit kind of a weird thing and he's also not wearing the same clothes as the rest of his friends in his working group. Number nine, he is kind to droids. I know that that's not a uniquely Jedi characteristic. However, it is almost universally true within the Jedi that they are kind to droids and other sentient beings um, in ways that regular humans are not. Number eight, The word force is used incredibly sparingly in the show. I think just a handful of times. And one of those times is Brasso. Yes, he is relaying a message from Marva. However, you cannot ignore the fact that that word is only used a handful of times. And one of those times is coming from this man's mouth. Number seven, there is something so force poetic about using a brick made of an anti-fascist loved one to beat fascists straight up period number six he has an incredible sense of knowledge and timing that i think is a little suspect for example in episode three it's implied or i inferred that he is the one who tied the corpo ship down while they were trying to grab cassian and he is the one who affixed that ship to it causing the pilot to die that pilot was the one who killed tim now to be clear fuck tim he fucking ratted on cassie into the corpos all corpos are bastards whatever whatever however tim did not deserve to die like that fuck that corpo awesome that brasso seemed to know that this is the dude and this is how to get him number five his sense of timing is also pretty incredible thinking about the fact that He started that funeral with his own sort of motion. That funeral was supposed to take place several hours after it it actually did. And the timing ended up being such that all of the Imperial guards were away from the hotel when Cassian needed them to be away so that he could rescue Bix. Just thrown out there, very coincidental timing. Number four, that man knows when to go and when to fight. Look at episode 12, he is in the thick of that riot. He fucking started that riot, rightfully so. How dare that Imperial piece of shit kick B2 Emo, my favorite droid, Eh, maybe chopper, but very strong contender for favorite droid. But he knows when it's time to go. And that's also a uniquely Jedi characteristic. Number three, knows what people are doing and feeling. He knows that Cassian has turned a corner when he meets with him in that tunnel. He knows that he's going to go and rescue Bix. He knows that Cassian's not going to go with them at the end of episode 12. He knows that Pegla's not going to go with them. He just seems to know things about people. I think that's very interesting because we don't know anything about him. We don't know where he came from. We don't know if he has family. We don't know what his background is like. And that is... Also lends credit to the theory that he's force sensitive because the question of course arises, this man isn't like 15 years old. Where were the Jedi when he was born? How come they didn't detect his force sensitivity if he's force sensitive truly? We don't know anything about him and Anakin didn't get detected. So there's a possibility that there are other force users out there that didn't get detected. We now come to probably the two biggest components to my theory. Number two, that man shook an imperial detail to go and meet with the most wanted man on Ferrix in episode 12 and give him vital information from Marva, basically bolstering him up, allowing him to go and be the hero that he needs to be for the day. I think that's pretty Jedi. And number one, the Imperials nicknamed him the big man. This large target calmly walked through heavy blaster fire to pull out Lil' Pac and take him away from danger. Didn't get hit. Didn't really even seem fluxed. That's to me pretty indicative. There we go. Those are my top 10. Fight me. Whatever you want to do, but that's my thought. I am going to close just gushing a little bit. Like I said at the top, I'm obsessed with this show. It brings the Star Wars themes that I've been so desperate to see right to the forefront without using any of the tropes that, you know, Star Wars has come to rely on. I am deeply invested in these characters, knowing that most of them are doomed. And I cannot wait for next season. I'm sure you guys are right there with me.
2: Thanks, Liz, for submitting. Thank you, everyone who has submitted to Nerd Outs this year. And stay tuned for the return of the segment in 2023. Huge thank you to Adam Serwer and, of course, Rosie Knight. Rosie, plugs, plugs, plugs. Can you give us one other very vague clue about an upcoming secret project that you have? you know what
3: I I can actually say because this is true of a few different things. Yes. I am working—the project I'm working on at the moment also has art by the incredible Oliver Ono. So I can say that. So it's a a re-teaming and and that's a couple of different things. So that's very exciting. Uh, plugs. Rosie Marks on Instagram. Uh, you can find me and Letterboxd under the same thing. Uh, my biggest plug would be that we are going to be at... We're going to be at LA Comic Con. If you listen to this on Friday, we will be there on yes. Saturday. Come and see us. Come through. We will be there tomorrow. It's going to be our first live Comic Con recording. You should come. It will be really fun. And yeah, it will just be, it will be a blast. And LA Comic-Con's pretty chill compared to the other Comic-Cons.
2: Catch our next episode on December 9th. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and follow at XRVPod on Twitter. Who knows for how much longer? And check out the Discord to meet and hang out with other X-Ray Vision fans. Rosie and I are there. We are interacting and communicating with everybody there. And it's a really fun community. Of course as rosie said la comic-con tomorrow december 3rd saturday december 3rd at 11 30 a.m in room 402 comes come through and see us five star reviews we love them we need them we gotta have them here's one from hop jake a show i never miss jason and rosie have such great chemistry together when they make each other laugh you can't help but smile as if you're all sitting at a table with friends nerding up oh, thank, thank you, you hop jake that's so awesome and Thanksgiving's over, but we want a special thank you to everybody who's been listening to the pod and to everybody who's been sharing your Spotify wraps, your your end wrap-ups of all the stuff you've been listening to on that platform that have included X-Ray Vision and have tagged us in it. That's so nice of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I wanted to quickly share a, a note with you about someone who's added a lot to X-Ray Vision Brian Vasquez, who composed and produced the music to X-Ray Vision, to takeland to various other Crooked Pods, and also composed the interstitial music, uh, has recently been diagnosed with leukemia. It's very unfortunate that we live in a country where people who fall ill then have to ask for money. But here we are. Uh, his family has set up a GoFundMe if you want to support him and give best wishes to his family. Uh, You can find information about that on the show notes. Uh, We're wishing the best for Brian uh, and he's in our thoughts. X-ray Vision is a crooked media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Rellaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time,
0: everybody.